Okay, so now we want to talk a bit about, as we discussed earlier, a close friend of the podcast, Vim Vendors. Actually, can I <laughs> interrupt just quickly to ask for your charge? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> Is there a plug? No, we will be with you vimininently. <laughs> oh, well, um... oh, now we have to keep this in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh, yeah, oh, Josh no. leave all this in. <laughs> vimininently. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to The Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the team behind The Skinny. It's me, Peter Simpson, with Anahit Berus. Hi. And uh, Jamie has gone on holiday to a film festival <laughs> uh, in the Czech Republic. So we're joined once again by Lewis Robertson. Hello, Hi, Lewis. hello once again. <laughs> how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. It's nice and warm outside. Town was absolutely full of tourists, so it took quite a long time to get here. But it we're took back. twice as long. It took twice as long as it should have. But we are back in the lovely and actually nice and cool uh, Upload Studios in Leith. Uploadstudios.co.uk, they're lovely and the studio is great. <laughs> That's a plug. Um, so, well yeah. ventilated. And, uh, <laughs> if you want a podcast space that is full of the equipment you need and also has a nice chill in the air, it's the place to come. <laughs> um, so yeah, today we're going to talk about a mix of stuff, a couple of new European releases to talk about. Uh, Javier Bardem is back and doing some big face acting. Uh, and a three Italian filmmakers are going on a wander across the country to find out about what the young people think. And then we're going to talk a bit about Vim Vendors as well, because there's a big Vim Vendors retrospective doing the rounds at cinemas across Scotland. So we're going to talk a bit about Vim's back catalogue and Paris, Texas in particular, which is getting a full 4K remaster and re-release at the end of the month. I love that Vim. Our buddy Vim. Our pal Vim. You know Vim. Vim. Close personal friend of the podcast, Vim Vendors. Um, so that's what's coming up in the rest of the episode. But to kick us off, as usual, we'll ask everybody what, if anything, they've been watching recently. Anahit, I know you've been painting your kitchen, so have you had time to fit anything else in around <laughs> Oh my god, this fucking paint saga. They gave me a paint without pigment in it. I've already complained to everyone, including you guys, but I will complain again. So there was no pigment in the paint. This is uninteresting, but it was very stressful. So no, I haven't been watching anything. I have been watching a lot of scrubs. A lot, a lot Fantastic of Fantastic sitcom. Like genuinely one of my favorite TV shows ever made. Mm -hmm. um, this is like my, what, like 10th rewatch? I tend to rewatch it every like year or two. Really love it. Um, and that is relevant because, Peter, I know you want to talk about uh, soundtracks <laughs> in a very specific and very deranged way. Um, and Scrubs has, honestly, one of the best TV show soundtracks. Like, it was fundamental to my musical taste. Like, still, almost everything I listen to kind of comes from and out of that. Um, so that is, like, very special to me segue to your deranged soundtrack well we'll bounce Chat. across to lewis first and then the, oh then no the we're building suspense I know. what possible soundtrack could peter be referring to is what he's talking about <laughs> lewis what have you been watching recently uh bits and bobs here and there the only thing that i've watched in the past couple of weeks that has really sort of elated me was mad god um oh yes. which is a feature length stop motion uh, dystopian horror film Ooh. um from when from it was released in 2021 did the edinburgh film festival in 2021 and i missed it and i was really annoyed uh but it has now what? been i did the edinburgh film festival 
it's now <laughs> been distributed on Shudder. Uh, so, you know, if you don't have Shudder, you can get yourself a Shudder or a Shudder free trial. I'm not plugging them, but uh, <laughs> it's a fantastic film. It's uh, really just nuts and, and, and freaky. And it's uh, Phil Tippett is the director, uh, created it over the course of 30 years. He's the special effects designer for um, things like the original Star Wars trilogy or Jurassic Park. Uh, and there's practically no dialogue. It really is just a 30-year-long project creating an hour-and-a-half-long film where um, a very passionate, creative person just made a bunch of freaky-looking models and had them all dancing about all over the shop. Um, I but remember this now. Yeah, yeah I recognise the pictures. It's still, it's still quite, it still manages to be really emotional. And um, Is it scary? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a hard thing to say because I, I don't even feel right calling it a horror because a mm. horror implies that, like, we're being chased or something's going to get us or there's some evil that's going to happen. Mm. When really the film is just sort of like these little vignettes. It's we've got a little character descending deeper and deeper into deeper levels of hell and <laughs> just him in the foreground moving down and in the background we have like a f an entire food chain happening. So little miniature stories that wind up being totally pointless, just set design, um, but some of them are quite like the imagery is just really intense. Um, That's really cool. But yeah, a really interesting, really unique film. So definitely worth checking that out. Sounds great. Is that on Shudder? That yeah. is on Shudder. Cool. What's the soundtrack like? <laughs> the soundtrack's lovely. The soundtrack is not at all freaky or horrible. It's actually just very sweet and orchestral. That's and nice. I get, I can see Peter itching out the corner of my eye. So oh. Peter, what have you, you been watching? Yeah. <laughs> I've actually like, I've like straight into my back yeah. and everything. I feel like I'm about to deliver the, a very interesting TED talk. Um, so the thing that I wanted to talk about, and I had warned everyone about this, to various levels of uh, chagrin in the office, Jamie was the most against it, but he's gone on holiday to the Czech Republic to a film festival, as we so previously you can do discussed. You can do what you like. Ain't no stopping me now. Uh, so... I wanted to talk briefly about the Minions Rise of Gru soundtrack. Now, I don't wait. necessarily wait, wait, there we go. So I didn't necessarily want to talk about the film because I don't think that there would be Is it because you haven't seen the film? It's because either? I haven't seen the film okay. and also because I don't I think that the Despicable Me films, the Minion verse, if you will, <laughs> has some interesting points, but it's actually like maybe something you would have to go into in the context of other things in animation. But the soundtrack stands on it. It's incredible. It's like simultaneously a brilliant idea and uh, the execution you would expect from a tacked on film soundtrack. So Jack Antonov, who is the guy behind Bleachers and is like a kind of superstar indie producer, seems to have just wrangled everyone he can find. Um, so he's got St. Vincent, Thundercat, Caliuchis, Phoebe Bridgers, Brock Hampton, Caroline Polacek, and everybody is doing uh, covers of 1970s funk classics like actual <laughs> funk bangers and it's I cannot, when I first saw this coming out, I could not work out whether this was a joke and then when I noticed that it wasn't a joke, I couldn't then work out, it wasn't a joke but was it serious? Um, and it turns <laughs> out that yes it is people, there's like varying levels of commitment throughout the soundtrack but like Thundercat just throws in ridiculous bass runs in the middle of uh, Fly Like an Eagle by the Steve Miller Band for no real reason. Uh, St. Vincent adds like three extra syllables into the word Funky Town when she does it. <laughs> Won't you take me to Funky Town? <laughs> it's incredible. And I'm like, this is obviously just bait 
for 33 year old hipsters to try and make them watch the minion film because they've got it's one of those films where like it's so massive and there's so much money and so much industry behind it that they're just looking at each individual market segment and mm. thinking like how can we attract these people to our thing this is the question though is it in the film like these songs or is it one of these where it's like you know how the hunger games did those like songs inspired by the hunger games i believe it is the actual soundtrack to the film so these all play in the film yeah okay although having not seen it i can't say um <laughs> i think you gotta go see it peter i think gotta I'm, make well, sure. I will report keep an eye out at yeah. your local cinema for the yeah. entire <laughs> cineskinny cast pulling the gentle minion stunt yeah oh absolutely we're all Fucking getting not. our three-piece suits ready <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> just in, in my notes uh, about this part, it just says, what's going on? Who are these gentle minions? I would just say, Google gentle minions. We do not have the time to get into it. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to use this just as a jumping off point to very quickly ask, what other films do the folk here today remember primarily for their soundtrack? You talked a bit about Scrubs and how Scrubs is very influential yeah. music-wise. Lewis, is there a film that you can think of where like you think film, not much about home, about soundtrack, slaps really hard. Well, I wouldn't say that necessarily. I would say that it's a really, really good film with a really, really, really good soundtrack, which would be Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Yes. Um, and it is a film that's really built around the soundtrack and its whole central theme is music, but it's, um, you know, they had like Beck and stuff like that contribute songs. Uh, but even then, I'm not much of a Beck listener, but I still think it's some of Beck's best work. So uh, if you've not seen that, absolutely check it out. Um, a fantastic film and a fantastic soundtrack. They recently released, because um, it's always been on Spotify, I think, but they've just released the, the versions from the film on Spotify a couple months ago. So like Brie Larson's vocals. Yes, for what was, the, it? was it Metric? Metric, yes. that's right, for the Clash at Demon Head scene. Oh. So that's on Spotify now, check it out. It's fantastic. Life-changing scene. I would also do a little shout out um, my in my Zach Braff apologist era, um, the Garden State soundtrack. I also think this Garden State film Fucks. It's also one of my favorite films, but the soundtrack is so good. It's so, so good. One final point on the minions. I would say. <laughs> Jesus. Well, well, I feel like that sentence is going to happen a lot. Yeah. This it's just that, um, so Laurie, our friend and colleague, I was speaking to her the other day and she was like, I never realized until now how much Diana Ross's voice sounds like one of the minions. I was going to say, you've buried the lead, which is the minions also feature on this soundtrack. They have their own little track and it's... Um, Cecilia. Is Cecilia. Is that Simon, <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel? Yeah. Or is it just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then when we discovered that, that led us on to, in the office, the day we were supposed to be sending the magazine to print, getting into an extended deep dive into the Sims soundtrack. Yeah, I was having like a small breakdown yeah. with like Lucy Dacus singing in Sing Simlish <laughs> in the background. Absolutely <laughs> nailing the syntax. The words made no sense. I feel like this part is done. <laughs> <laughs> so first up, should we do the good boss first? Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. so the good boss, Julio Blanco, he owns a mid-size scale manufacturing company somewhere in Spain, and he is dead set on winning the uh, Local Government Small Business Excellence Award to go on his wall of many small-time awards. Uh, unfortunately for him, he has a kind of tangled web of relationships and business issues to unpick in the meantime. Uh, so it's Javier Bardem playing Julio Blanco among a kind of, like, menagerie of people who work for him or uh, live alongside him and who interact with him in some way or another. Now this film was the most nominated film ever at the Goya Awards, which are the Spanish kind of equivalent of the Oscars. It was nominated for 
20 Goya Awards, 2-0, um, and it won six of them. I believe that Javier Bardem won Best Actor. It mm. also uh, was Spain's selection for the Academy Awards in 2022, beating the Pedro Almodovar film Parallel Mothers, uh, Anahi. How do you feel <laughs> about this? About this state of affairs? Um, Peter, I think, has thrown it to me because in the notes I have written that I went ahead of Parallel Mothers in the Oscar race is bananas to me, sorry. And that is how I feel about this. It is bananas to me. Like, I just, I okay, the whole thing of it being like the most nominated film in Spanish, this is not a bad film. And I think you guys liked it more than I did. But I'm not like, this is a bad, but I just don't understand. Like, I've seen Spanish cinema. I've seen a lot of Spanish cinema. There's a lot of really good Spanish cinema. There's like a lot of really like excellent Spanish cinema. How did this beat like every Amadevar film ever? Anyway, so like that is just a little bit bemusing. I think this film for me was like aggressively fine. So it's kind of billed as a satire in a way of the workplace. Um, and you really have like at the beginning, Javier Bardem's character keeps talking about like, you know, we're a family and you guys are like children to me. And it's really kind of satirizing I think that sort of collapse between that late stage capitalism collapse between like your boundaries of your work life and your personal life and the way that like brands and businesses try and pretend they're your friend but actually they are your employer and what you're doing is labor you're not like helping out your family and so it's very much like a satire within that um but I just didn't think it was that satiric <laughs> like I didn't think it had that much bite I think things like um Thinking about other like satires about class and work, like something like Parasite worked really well because it had a very like cinematic idea of like there's a layered house that you kind of are going up and down and the people that live in it and even like the basement that the family lives in and like the hills and the flood water and it's all like doing something. Whereas I think for me, this film felt a little bit like trapped between drama and satire. And it didn't really feel like it did any of them particularly like exceptionally well. Um, I didn't really feel that it was saying all that much politically beyond that this kind of business as family model is bullshit, which I agree with. And definitely that's an interesting premise for a film, but it didn't really kind of engage with it in a way that was, yeah, that I found all that interesting. As the film goes along, it does get better because you kind of start to see the like machinations that he's putting in place to like keep this illusion alive. Like he's constantly like, um, what is that analogy of like the well and the waters, not the well, the dam and the waters coming through and you're constantly like blocking it up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, okay, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know, when the war well and the water yeah, yeah, the and the dam and, and your hands. Trying to like, uh, try to change the tires on a car while the car is driving down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very much that. Um, and it is quite interesting to see quite how dark it becomes um but i just i think i would have liked it to be more like more outrageous and more daring and more like fucked up and weird um having said that javier bardem is really good and i think actually a lot of the satire is just down to his performance the man has an excellent face like such a good face like it's so malleable there are like these kind of really tight smiles he gives everything you know like what i mean mm. where like he's got himself in a corner and he's like horrified by something but he's having to put on a face and his like face like goes up like a little emoji it's really disturbing <laughs> um and yeah like he 
he's a very like malleable actor and he is very good. So I think it is worth watching. Um, but I just, I don't know. I, I don't really know who it's for. I think it felt like a little bit broad to me. Like maybe it's for people who aren't really within these conversations or haven't really thought, but then I think most people have. So I don't know. I didn't love it, but you guys liked it more. Yeah, I think that the thing of it not having the most bite in the world, I think is a fair comment. Um, but I do think Javier Bardem is very good, isn't he, Lewis? Javier Bardem is very good. Um, I I felt that it was a little bit of a tricky tone to work out. So, like, straight out the gate, you can kind of identify it's got this sort of light colour scheme and a little bit of a Danny Elfman-sounding soundtrack. Like, it, oh, yeah, it feels a little bit, like... <laughs> chill and and, and light-hearted um, and then you know Javier Bardem's character starts to unravel a little bit and I was beginning to feel like this is some sort of one of those newfangled young person's comedy that doesn't have any actual <laughs> jokes in it uh, <laughs> but like he, he, you know I mean he does he tells Mariah's to um to like put his his wife's affair in a drawer in his mind except mm. then he can't stop thinking about his wife having sex in this drawer <laughs> like that was funny yeah. um, and then like you said, his whole facial expression, the face, the face journeys he goes on when he like gets caught in something or gets cornered, and like you just like watching him squirm is like very entertaining. It, it feels almost like the whole point of this film is just to have a bad boss. It's like The Office, really. Mm. Um, and then it takes a really really dark turn where that sort of pseudo force all comes together. Um, the the, the the, like it's not even that the the first act is just setting up all these different pieces like this upcoming inspection or like this affair for you to then explode in the third act it's also kind of i think just lulling you into a really weird atmosphere where you don't expect it to take the turn that it does um it, like it's a it's a it, you know it's got a pretty clear moral about the workplace I, and I, I think i understand what you mean in terms of like who's this for for me personally i felt like it was kind of like um um, baby's first anti-capitalist yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. In this character, you know, pinning all of the problems, the 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 absolute tragedy of this company and all of the horrible things that happen on this one guy who's just this self-important blowhard, like, that, you know, is a very simplistic way of looking at it, right? It's, it's a very easy way to teach people how corporations are not your friends and how mm. your boss is not your friend because he's not. We can see him. Uh, that is about that is what gives Javier Bardem the chance to give this great performance because mm. he's really like making a lot of the stuff of this film move. He's really like taking it through all of its paces. He's really like stretching this character out. But it is kind of surprising to me that it won this many awards. Like I, with Parasite, you know, you were comparing it to. I think Parasite just has a lot more bizarre imagery and it steers into that and it, it gets almost apocalyptic in a mm. way whereas it's important to remember that the stakes in this film for the first two acts are just that he might not get that 100th award or he might have yeah. marital troubles when his wife finds out mm. like it, it's very easy to kind of just disconnect yourself from the stakes of the film um for sure and i think even like comparing it to and i think it's being compared so much to parallel mothers just because of that like awards conversation but to me parallel mothers is so much more of a political film like the way that it deals with like the kind of legacies of 
like Franco's regime and like all of these kind of bodies and like how you kind of look at history and feel about history. And it's so much more nuanced and it's so much more like, like you say, the stakes are so much more there. Whereas this is very like, yeah, baby's first anti-capitalist film is such a good yeah. way of putting it. Like it is that. <laughs> and I think it's one of these films where like it, the kind of thing that gets nominated for a lot of awards because it has someone you've heard of giving a very good performance mm. and a lot of things that you kind of, it's that thing of, it, it has a message, but you'd really struggle to find anyone who disagreed with it. Um, it feels it felt to me more like a satire of men rather than businessmen and like it felt more like it was just a that because he's this classic kind of patrician small-time factory owner who's like this is my family business it felt like it didn't go into the ways that corporate interests corrupt things because it wasn't really presenting a corporate interest it was presenting a guy inserting himself into situations and realizing that all of his problems essentially stem from the fact that he can't actually solve that much mm. um he can like make the scales there's a recurring thing in the film that because it's a scale manufacturing company as subtext that is an incredibly on the nose metaphor <laughs> but the fact that characters <laughs> constantly use it in the text itself as if it's really insightful is itself very funny like people are constantly <laughs> referencing the fact that like oh life really is like a set of scales and it's like that doesn't work if you're trying to like lace it in as if it's clever but when you remove yourself one step from it and say like this idiot thinks this is dead clever ha ha mm. ha 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 um i thought there was some like interesting stuff in the subplots where there's a guy who has been fired by the company right at the start and he kind of pitches up across the street and starts like protesting and shouting stuff and making friends with the security guard and like getting in to use the toilet and all that kind of stuff. Those little bits are where it like it is at its strongest. But I think that overall, it's a funny, interesting film with a really good central performance that is, like Lewis was saying, a gateway to other films in this genre and even like just other media, even things like. It makes The Office look like a kind of rip-roaring, like, anarchist, <laughs> like, pamphlet, really. Like, it's it's basically saying, like, oh, this guy runs a family business, but he's not a great family man. Yeah. But look at his face. Look at that face. <laughs> look at him go. Whereas I think the thing that was really interesting about The Office was, first of all, um, just again from a filmmaking standpoint like the mockumentary thing and all of that and how that works but it's also interesting because michael scott is he's not the one actually that's fucking everything up mm -hmm. he's also part of the machine but he doesn't recognize that he's been incorrectly placed in a position of authority yeah yeah, yeah. but he's like he doesn't really have authority and people are fucking him over at the same time as he's fucking everyone else for over. sure at the beginning of the office there's no point where we think we're rooting for michael scott whereas this film opens with him giving a speech mm. happy about him giving a speech about how his workers are like his family and we know that's bullshit but the film presents it to us as like okay here is what normalcy is for this world mm. this film is going to be about how that's all a lie yeah. yeah um so again like when we go into it we're not convinced by this scene we're not convinced by any of his bullshit and we already know you shouldn't meddle in the personal lives it is very simplistic it is, the, the, there's morals that are like just just stuff that you don't really need to have worked in that kind of a workspace or never worked in that kind of a workspace to know yeah 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 yeah, yeah. no exactly and like both of you said who is gonna apart from like Jeff Bezos, who is gonna look at this and be like, oh no, it doesn't have a point. Yeah. Um, 
Do you have anything else? Yes. He I, does. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to bring up that, like, while we're talking about how much critical acclaim this film has gone, I really don't feel great about the character of Liliana, yeah. who's a female character who's sexually attracted to her father's friend, gets a job at this factory without revealing who she is, sleeps with him, and then when he refuses to return her feelings, turns on him, blackmails him, puts herself in like a, a high-ranking position. And I really do not think that at this point we should be telling stories about how women are using sex in the workplace to advance their... Because when a CEO sleeps with an intern, that's usually not what not is what is happening. Yeah. No. Yeah, she doesn't come out. Okay. Yeah, for sure. 100%. I agree. Um, and there is like things like that, I think, that make it feel like a tiny bit dated in a way. Um, yeah. It's, but... It doesn't exactly feel like a cutting edge work of political satire. No. But if you like Javier Bardem's face and want, <laughs> uh, I would say, a raised, what do you call it, like, um, like a heaped teaspoon of good gags. Yeah. You're in, you're in for a treat. <laughs> so that is The Good Boss. It's out in cinemas across the UK on the 15th of July. From Spain, we move onwards to Italy. Segway. Um, so Futura is the second film we're going to talk about. So there's three Italian filmmakers. So it's Alice Rohrwacher, who made Happy as Lazzaro a couple of years ago. Francesco Munzi, who's the director of Black Souls, and Pietro Marcello, who made Martin Eden, which is a film I constantly hear people talking about being good, but have not watched. It's really good. It's like really, really good. Yeah. I'll um. add it to the watch list. <laughs> <laughs> like genuinely. Yeah. So the three of these filmmakers tour around Italy, making a documentary, talking to young people across the country about their hopes, their fears, their dreams, their aspirations. Uh, and then COVID happens about halfway through the shoot. So then that all gets rolled in as well. Um, I'm going to say Agnes Vardacor uh, in terms of yes. visuals, very like washed out, like all shot on film, lots of like fixed frames and really centering your interviewees, very kind of light touch from the filmmakers with a few uh, exceptions. Um, it's not a Louis through, let's put it that way. It's quite a kind of like loosely structured, but I would say quite interesting documentary, but I'll let Lewis go first because I've just been talking. <laughs> okay. Um, I suppose what could make it a little bit of a difficult watch is that sometimes we interview these different groups of kids and they are covering the same ground, they're saying the same things. And that is kind of the point of the film, right, is that you're meant to understand that all across Italy and different walks of life, these kids all have really similar concerns. They're united by their worries about the future. But it does mean that you might just hear the same thing more than once. It can struggle to keep your attention in that regard. But the monotony is broken up a little bit. There's archival footage, which is used really, really cleverly um, from the protests from the G8 summit in, I think it's 2001. Yeah, it was Genoa in 2001. Yeah. Um, as well as um, there's like archival footage of documentaries from like the 50s and 60s, um, which, you know, not only shows how different life was, but how different documentaries were, where then it's much more of an interrogative thing, right? You have these documentarians who are like demanding to know what books kids have in their homes or how much they get paid for bringing the old guys coffee. Uh, whereas you're right in in this documentary, our documentarians, they are they're very like light, not particularly aggressive. Um, let the young people speak for themselves. Really, don't talk down to them. Talk to them as equals. Uh, they're all interviewed in groups. Um, 
I think that's significant because they always seem to point the finger at individualism as their biggest, mm. you know, problem with the future is the idea that one wants to rise above all the else. So it's nice that we have them in these groups and yet we can still get like quite a good level of intimacy. There's some good camera work that helps with that. There's a part where we're like, it's a youth choir and there's these incredible close-ups. And I really liked that the, you can see their little like puberty mustaches and their, their <laughs> spots. And it's a very honest portrayal of, of young people. Um, and it seems to characterize adolescence as quite a contradictory thing. So the subjects share some thoughts that I consider traditional. I think one of them says like, oh, I'm gonna have a car and then a job and then I'm gonna get a family. That's the order you do things in. And there's a group of girls that are talking about how a man should provide for the family. Uh, but then when they're asked about what sort of things they are worried about the future, they talk about, you know, climate concerns. They talk about misogyny. They talk about the patriarchy. Um, so, you know, I think that we have those contradictions uh, and that's really part of what this film is characterizing youth as, is that these people come kind of preloaded with these ideas. They're sort of parroting things that they don't necessarily believe. But once they start to get uh, asked, once they start to get a, a bit of a dialogue going, then we realize that their concerns are actually things that don't compute with what they've just said. So that's a really interesting interpretation, I think, of you. That's a really interesting way to capture it. Uh, what did you think, Peter? I thought, it, yeah, I think one of the things about the filmmaking both in terms of like the style and the structure is that it's such a light touch that it means that the themes can take a while to draw out. Um, you know, you kind of go to see one group of kids and they say something and you go and see another group of kids and they say something different. And it's only when you get to the fourth or fifth or sixth that things start to kind of coalesce together. And because it's very minimal narration um, and often quite just like structurally, the framing isn't super overt means that it can like go on a bit for want of a better way to put it but i think that what it teases out these concerns about like what am i going to do for a job what am i going to do for opportunities why do i just generally have feelings of malaise and unhappiness um i think that the sort of like the core things that came through to me were this like you say being young is a very contradictory thing these groups of kids were presenting like dreamy idealism extremely bleak realism and just like kind of general wide-eyed wonder like the amount of them who were like i want to be a footballer i want to make mm. art for a living i want to have you know there's a really interesting quote when they go to sp i think it's when they go to speak to a group of young men who have come to italy and ended up in a kind of like juvenile um i think that they've yeah, come from places outside Italy and ended up in this kind of like juvenile home. And one of them says in the middle of this conversation, it's all about money and about what you're going to do with your life. And this kid just says like, life shouldn't only be about surviving. And I think that there's like a real sense of the kids in this film. And I say kids, it's important to say that the groups that they talk to are kind of between like 13 and 22. Like it's a mixture of like school age kids college age kids and like university students and like post-grad people so it's like a broad scope of youth but i think this these the way it kind of reflects this mixture of like idealism and realism and it also is really interesting as a reflection of how these kids see italian society as a whole 
for a bunch of like young people they talk a lot about how individualism is like has increased in the time that they've been around and they have noticed it how their opportunities seem to be abroad whether that's through study or work how the political climate is like bad and getting worse and it's really interesting to see young people able to grasp those issues and even if they don't have any solutions like nobody's asking nobody should be asking like 20 year olds to solve the world's problems it's more than enough at that stage that they know what they are mm. and they know that what they're they don't know what they're going to have to do on a holistic level to stop them but they certainly know that what they're looking at ain't it yeah do you know what it so i haven't seen this because i was painting but do you know what it kind of reminds me of just listening to you both speak is um did you, either of you watch mike mills come on come on last year no is like that you know a... the the joaquin phoenix one that I was like black and white yeah i saw it doing the rounds but i didn't ever got a chance to watch it it is really beautiful like it's so gorgeous um oh my god it was one of my favorite films of last year but it kind of has this whole so he like in that he has a podcast that is like interviewing children about the future and so it's all kind of like framed by these various interviews that i think were just done in real life and they're just like very off the cuff and naturalistic about like how do you feel about your place in the world both like existentially and politically and like I know just like hearing these kids speak and I'm not really like one to kind of gush idealistically about oh they're like you know the eyes of children or the whatever um I think children like all people can be annoying mixed, <laughs> mi mixed bag, <laughs> mixed the, bag. Silly, the, silly, the silly skinny verdict on children three stars <laughs> They can be annoying. Yeah. <laughs> they can. Work. Three stars, some bright points. <laughs> but it was really like, it made me realize how little we actually really hear actual, like, verbatim what children are saying in society and in culture. And that was really, yeah, like, oh, like a kind of moment of, oh, yeah, we don't just have that. I mean, it's quite eye opening in, in the film just to have them talk so freely about mm. these kinds of issues but like i said we are kind of reminded of their youth quite honestly um mm. and i think maybe you know contradictions that sort of contradictory thing it, it, it's a really big theme uh not only do we have them talking about the how they feel that there's no future in italy there's no jobs in italy that italy has nothing for young people um interspersed with them all playing football together, all all playing music together, all working on a newspaper together. Like they, um, I don't know, they, they just seem to, it, there is this uh, nearly stereotypical, idealized look of Italy, right? Mm. Like it, I, I, I dare any director to make a film set in Italy where Italy does not look like a good place to live. <laughs> But that's very present in this film, despite the fact that like they're being very upfront about the kind of problems that they're facing. Yeah, yeah, because there's also there are moments where people will say like, "Oh, Italy's got nothing for me," but it's also great. Yeah, um, like almost that's almost a verbatim quote from one of them who says like, "Oh yeah, this place is terrible. Still, best country going." <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the thing from Train Spotting? It's it's shite being Scottish. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but that's where it ends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard Wait, to feel that realism. way about the UK. Yeah. Um, and one other thing I just wanted to throw in is that there's a moment where they go to a boxing gym. I think it's in Rome. And they talk to these young guys. 
and one of, the, one of these guys is like, oh yeah, social media, final nail in the coffin, it's dreadful. And he says the line, we keep exchanging information, but nobody really cares. And as somebody who manages this, so, as two people who manage our social media accounts and all the digital publishing stuff, I simply want to say, ouch, so. There's you a- got me with the, with the sucker punch. Never saw it coming. There's a bit, I think, where one of them's talking about social media and they think it's a real big problem and it's only going to get bigger. And I'm like, are you serious? It feels like it's pretty much at 100% right now. Yeah, how much bigger can it get? I feel like we're just going to, like, I don't know. That's Maybe that. Maybe that's why they're interviewing them and not me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not an Italian youth. <laughs> Lewis is just like, I think society ends here. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've come as far as we're going to go. That's it. <laughs> Nothing more to say. But if you want to hear from some idealistic youths, then uh, Futura is out. It's a kind of limited release. So it's on at the Glasgow Film Theatre from this Friday, the 8th. And then it is on at Dundee Contemporary Arts from the 25th of July. And then it'll be on at the Film House in Edinburgh from the 1st of August. Is it a digital release or is it showing in film? It's showing, it's showing, ooh, that's a good question. I think it is a digital release. Right. I don't think there's an actual like film print of it, right, right. which is a bit of a shame, but it looks lovely. Mm-hmm. Very sunny. Which very, is like, Italian. very Italian. God, I'd like to move there. <laughs> I know that's not the point of the film, but... <laughs> Just hearing them be like, there are no opportunities there. Seeing like some big piazza, I mean, that could be worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the opportunity, right there. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Wim Wenders, a German filmmaker, one of the most prominent members of the new German cinema movement, which was early 60s to early 80s. People like uh, Marguerite von Grotta and Rainer Fassbinder and the big man, Werner Herzog. Um, they were really inspired by French New Wave films and they were making like arty, interesting, low budget films in Germany in like 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, some of those filmmakers, Herzog and Wenders among them, went on to work in Hollywood, which is always exciting. It's what you want, eh? Get down Hollywood. Is that what, what you want? Go <laughs> Have you seen sunset? the film? <laughs> yeah. Get a cameo in The Mandalorian. Vim Vendor's, yeah, Vim, Vim Vendor's Minions crossover went. Anyway, um, so eight of Vim Vendor's films have been remastered uh, and are getting re-released this month in a season that's kind of doing the rounds across uh, Edinburgh, Glasgow and Dundee. And so we thought it'd be a good time especially ahead of the re-release of what most people probably consider certainly his most famous work and one of his best works, Paris, Texas, is getting a full kind of 4K remaster and re-release from the 29th of July. So we thought we'd have a little chat about Vim Vendors and about the way that he works and Paris, Texas in particular. And we'll also talk about a couple other films and just like think a bit about his filmmaking. So there's a couple of really interesting things about the way that Vim Vendors works. One of them is the way that he uses kind of like perspective um, and how he kind of places the camera in a way that creates this kind of like detachment and on like a kind of documentary type edge to his filmmaking. He's worked a lot in documentaries. He has like three best documentary Oscar nominations. Um, and I was, we were having a little look through and there was a really interesting interview he did with The Guardian earlier this month where he said that he tries to be a witness to things when he's filming. He tries to preserve what he sees and that there's a sense of preservation in his films, preserving landscapes, preserving houses, preserving characters. And that's certainly something that comes through in Paris, Texas 
from 1984. It was kind of his big American hit. Harry Dean Stanton plays a guy called Travis who goes wandering off into the Texan desert, uh, is eventually reunited with his brother and the family that you could argue he wandered off from. <laughs> uh, Lewis, we all kind of watched Paris, Texas recently mm-hmm. in preparation for this podcast because that's how it works. <laughs> we put in the work. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it is a film that has like a very specific like visual style and visual perspective would mm-hmm. you say i would say yeah okay. uh, <laughs> did you imagine if he was like no no uh, didn't get it actually it's really boring yeah. it's just a desert really um no so i loved it of course it is a fantastic film i i was doing a little bit of research around it because i enjoyed it so much and found out this was the first time in vendor's career that he didn't use any storyboarding he went straight from uh on-set rehearsals to filming and that's just crazy to me it feels so meticulous doesn't it it feels so planned organized well thought out but in fact it's rather improvised these immense picturesque shots were probably just you know invented on the day um not to get to uh multimedia but it reminds me of the whole thing when uh, monet's eyesight was failing and he would have to paint very very quickly to capture the light uh, before the, it got too dark um, and what many people consider that improved that that lack of self-doubt that the, the complete mm. lack of ability to correct yourself to go back over things is what gave his work an urgency and its own real character um, something that's kind of universally appealing like instead of having pulled together different moments thoughts inspirations um vendors just ha- can intuit aesthetic yeah um it's so interesting that you mentioned money because when i was watching it parts of the way that he films really reminds me of terence malick who like especially with days of heaven was like i am shooting in like an hour of golden light and mm-hmm. that's it and that's all we're doing today and he did that over three years and then assembled it and that kind of like you say just wanting to be in aesthetically how the filmmaking works how that will like build on your and then kind of going from there i think that's such an as it turns out the 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 batshit crazy techniques used by intense auteurs actually works like it actually (laughs) winds up making really really good films um it's absolutely packed with visual metaphors so the the most famous one all the critics talk about in paris texas is the the very end where our two characters are having a dialogue through a, a peep show window and thus are forced to look at their own reflections. Um, but personally, my favorite is uh, the crossing of the road where um, where uh, Travis is wants his son to cross the road and walk with him, but he won't. So they walk on the opposite roads. It's really sweet, isn't and they, it? they like copy what the other one yeah, is doing. Yeah, it's really, oh my God. and it, it's, you know, for such a sad, sad movie, it's that, very happy peak before we go back down but vendors really likes roads in general as you know many of his films involve them he seems to have clocked on to the point that hey roads literally take you somewhere but also they can be like a metaphorical transition <laughs> um but it, it, lewis guys <laughs> <laughs> the english grad has yeah <laughs> But that's the thing, isn't it? That like it's insane how much of a script this is, just in terms of the visuals. It's insane mm. how much character development and and dialogue happens in scenes with no dialogue, like when they're watching Super Eights together. Mm. Like we see these relationships 
building and rebuilding in entirely visual sequences. So that's really like a huge part of what makes this film brilliant. Yeah. One of the other things about Paris, Texas, that's every shot is beautiful. The compositions, the colors feels very real and very kind of like you could reach out and touch it, but it also puts you at this kind of remove from what's going on. There's all the massive skylines, the really overwhelming LA mm. traffic. When they go to LA, Travis's brother lives in this house on a hill that directly overlooks the airport. And there's a constant hum in the background. There's always kind of like some background noise or somebody's like driving past. And it there's one really funny nod at the start when Travis is standing. Travis has just been standing in the desert and then he passes out and then his brother gets a phone call and he's standing in front. He looks like he's also standing in this kind of like desert vista but he's actually just standing in front of a billboard because yeah. he works at like a sign writing company yeah. and like these kind of like this thing of putting you in the situation but you're still very much aware that you are an observer of the situation it is that thing of the kind of observing preserving eye mm -hmm. that is one of the things that makes this film really sad as well because you feel like you can never like you just want to be like please talk to each other but they can't hear you because that's not how films work yeah <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> yeah no that's so true and but despite that like because I had heard that it was sad and so I kind of thought that it would be very bleak but it's more like melancholy but there is just such an underlying sweetness to it like I kept waiting for something to go very wrong, for someone to do something very horrible. And they just don't, <laughs> really. Um, like so much of it is the fallout of this guy having left. And you're trying to kind of figure out why that happened so long ago and what has happened to him. And it kind of sets that up as a mystery, but then actually there's very little plot in that way. Like it is just, yeah, that observational thing of just watching it happen. Um, it is a very American film as well. Um, which is so interesting because I think this was his first film in America, like shot in America, or no? I think it might or like have it been. was his like big hit. At it was least. his big, yeah. But I, like having come from sort of German European cinema, and he definitely has that like sensibility. But it is very much, I think, working within that like Western tradition, um, like kind of like the searches or something like that, and that idea of like finding identity through like the desert and that journey from like the desert to the metropolis, like going through like Americana and the American dream and the American landscape, like all of that is just so clever. That sort of, um, it, it starts so powerfully with just us having this character who's in the middle of a desert with a beard and a suit and we have no idea what's going on. And we're really in the same boat as him because it's this kind of return to civilization, right? Yeah. Not only do the sets become more and more populated with buildings the further along we go. But early on in the film, when we have, when we encounter these characters like this sort of sleazy, crooked doctor out in the middle of nowhere, um, all these conversations feel like headaches, right? Uh, or with the, um, the woman who won't let them rent the same car or find the same car that they rented, and then eventually just lets them do it because she didn't even care that much in the first place. And it really puts you in the same position as Travis, even though we know nothing about him. And it's already quite a questionable, sinister beginning. But if these little interactions 
which, you know, disappear closer to the end of the film, if these little interactions feel like such a slog to get through or feel like such conflicts for what little they are, then it builds this sense of dread of what's actually going to happen when we fully return to civilization, right? When we're in California, when we're amongst buildings and and amongst planes. It, it, it's a, a really subtle and really, really intelligent way of building empathy for this character who does not speak. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, so there's a really good piece actually in the skinny this month. And we're not just saying that because we work there. Uh, it's Rory Doherty's piece that is all about Paris, Texas from the perspective of, he talks a lot about it. The, it's a film that kind of interrogates the American soul in a way that is like authentic and from an outsider's perspective. Yeah. So it is like, again, it's that thing of it's very much centered on that specific location, but it's done in a way where there's enough detachment that you like you were saying this you don't know you don't feel comfortable in what is happening but not necessarily in a kind of like oh no way it's just that it puts you on kind of shifting sands um throughout throughout its runtime that was a piece that unfortunately we didn't put the headline on of it was being about the masculine urge to walk into the desert. So, <laughs> which we should have. Which we should have. Maybe I'll just go back and change yeah. it uh, just now. Because that was funny. Yeah. Um, and then there was a piece that uh, was maybe in that same Guardian interview Vin Vendors talked about when he finished Paris, Texas, the next few years were very difficult for him because people just wanted him to do that again. Mm. And there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people were thinking, oh, this is the guy who makes these kind of films. And then one of the next films he went on to make is another one we want to talk about a bit, which is Wings of Desire, which came out three years after Past Texas in 1987. So Wings of Desire is about an angel who lives in West Berlin who wants to become human. Yeah. And it, this also didn't have a script. So he was doing it, uh, Vim Vendor's close friend of the pod, uh, <laughs> did an interview with the BFI um, a couple of weeks ago and he talked about how he had this big wall in the office where he had all the places in Berlin he wanted to film and on the other side of the room on the other wall he had all the scenes he wanted to shoot and every night he would just think what do I want to film tonight where can I go and it's pieced together in that very in that way where he was going back kind of to his roots and he was going back to a city that he knew a lot about um, and Anahit you were speaking the other day about how much you liked Wings of Desire. I loved Wings of Desire. So I just went to see it and I'm kind of sad in a way that we didn't kind of do this, which like we couldn't have because Paris Texas was coming out at the end of the month. But because of these um, retrospectives that have been in the cinemas, Wings of Desire was in like Filmhouse and Glasgow Film Theatre. And I think it's now going, which is really sad because I did go and see it at Filmhouse and it is stunning. Um, and also on the screen, they were saying how like the restoration for it because it's a film that is both like monochrome and in color. And so they'd had to like go back to the originals and like re-hand color them because they're just, the way that it had been treated like to show a can had basically been like four levels removed from, so there was no way of restoring it without going. Like, it was just so meticulously done. Um, but yeah, like Lewis, you were kind of talking about like this idea of empathy that he's kind of putting you in this position in Paris, Texas. Um, and this is just such a like, profoundly humanist film like you have these angels so there's this kind of main one who is either Cassiel or Damiel I think it's Damiel 
but my memory is really bad. But yeah, um, there's it kind of centers mostly on two and especially on one who wants to become a human. But there's like loads of them all around the city and they can't really be seen apart from by children, which is really sweet. Um, but they kind of listen to people's thoughts and so people's thoughts will just be playing over um, and they'll just kind of like often just put a hand on their shoulder and it's about like these moments of like connection and helping other people. Um, but yeah, there's also this one that just wants to be part of that more to like live through that pain and life with someone. And he like falls in love with a circus performer and it does that thing that, um, oh God, what are they called? Um, the people that did A Matter of Life and Death that they now have Powell the award. Thank you. Um, so they did this in A Matter of Life and Death where heaven is in black and white and the real world is in color. And it actually kind of subverts all of those religious ideas of like, you know, it's the afterlife that is gonna be like, that actually the life that you have on earth that is messy and incomplete is like what is actually in color. And it kind of does that very similarly. So when you see through the angel's eyes, it's in black and white. It's just so good. Like all of it is just so good. Like this kind of mixture of like style, stylization and naturalism. Um, there's this bit, like a concert with Nick Cave because Nick Cave was living in Berlin at the time. And Vim Vendors was like, if I was going to make a film about Berlin, he's such a big part of Berlin that I was not going to not have him in it. Yeah. So he just like films his concert that has like the energy of any like concert film you've ever seen. And that's just these angels walking around it. It's so nice. It is so nice. And it's also just such a good film in the same way that Paris, Texas is a very good film about America. This is a very, very good film about post-war Germany in the ways that kind of there are these big shots of the city. There are shots of the Berlin Wall, which obviously weren't the Berlin Wall because it was illegal to film the Berlin Wall. Um, so they're kind of reconstructions. Um, but just this idea of like a city having been torn up by trauma and like a country having been torn up by like these fucking atrocities and how do you like put yourself back together and come to terms with the past. Um, it also has, last thing, last persuasion, uh, Peter Falk playing himself. It was just like mic drop moment. Yeah. Why would he? Perfect film. Perfect film. It's so, so good. So apparently the reason they had Peter Falk is because Claire Denis was the assistant director. Yeah, holy shit. <laughs> and Claire oh. Denis apparently uh, friend of the pod, Claire Denis. Fair, fair, <laughs> and two friends of the pod hanging out, Claire Denis <laughs> and um, apparently Claire Denis was looking at the boards and she was like, "This film isn't very funny." We need someone who's funny. <laughs> yeah. Phone Peter phone, phone Peter Falk. Yeah. And they wanted someone that they were like, everyone will recognize. And they were like, obviously it is Columbo. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the one kind of cultural touchstone. And you do have people in the film constantly because he's playing like an actor that's in a film about like Nazi Germany. Um, and you have him walking down the street and people being like, hey, it's Columbo. <laughs> Which is just so nice. It's such a nice film. Yeah. One other note about um, Nick Cave in Wings of Desire is that he's very sexy. He's very Sorry, sexy. Can I just that's say. The, that sub note. Sub note. Uh, yeah. <laughs> One final note, aside from his sexiness, <laughs> is that apparently at this time Nick Cave was uh, on the sesh pretty much constantly, <laughs> um, and because this was in the 1980s, uh, Vin Vendors talked about uh, how he had to just physically go and find him. It'd be like if you wanted to t if you wanted to talk to Nick Cave, you had to go to this like particular bar at like three in the morning, and he would be in there. So that's how they got Nick Cave because he was like, I couldn't do a film about 
Berlin without having Nick Cave in it, but also no one can find Nick Cave because he's <laughs> constantly steaming. So it was like... <laughs> That's also very sexy. Yeah, truly, the observational filmmaker yeah. strikes again. It's like, I have observed you coming out of the toilet, and I'm going to ask you to be in my film. Cannot wait for the uh, Hangover-style prequel where we are trying to find Nick yeah. Cave yeah. <laughs> massively hungover somewhere in Berlin. Yeah, Nick Cave just wandered, just that start opening scene in Paris, Texas, where he just like appears in this just wanders just, out of the Berlin wall yeah he just wanders like, out of like past like a kebab shop in Kongsberg yeah. just staring into the middle distance looking weirdly crusty but also still hot still hot that's <laughs> the thing um, so Paris, Texas uh, is getting a full UK re-release from the 29th of July um, Wings of Desire if you listen to this podcast the day it comes out and you can get to Dundee <sighs> it's on at DCA tonight but it's also now that it's been restored and um like it's there's digital prints of it available i'm sure it'll play in various places yeah in the next wee while and also it'll get a digital re-release and i'm also sorry just like looking it up um okay this actually the film house website is confusing <laughs> but there are still other of his films still showing as part of the retrospectives in both gft and um what do you call it? Film House and yeah. DCA, I think, but just not necessarily Wings of Desire, but other ones. And then Parasites coming out. Yes. So there's eight films in total in this kind of, I think it's Kino Dreams, they've called the kind of overall mm. series. Um, and yeah, they're just going to be laced through the programs of everyone's favorite indie film theaters for the next uh, couple of weeks. So go and check them out. Watch Paris, Texas. You'll feel melancholic and sad. But you'll also be very impressed. So very classic impressed. double whammy, <laughs> <laughs> kind of the theme of this episode. <laughs> uh, okay, I think that is probably about us for yep. today. Uh, so thank you, Lewis. Oh wait, do we want to say what there is to look forward to in the cinemas? <laughs> yes, in the yes, cinemas. we could. Yeah, yeah, you know what? That's a good, good idea. Anyway, you <laughs> volunteered to, yourself. Yeah. What are you looking forward? Not to bring this back to our film. Um, so, well, just to say that Celine Siama season is playing in the film house. Oh, yes. From July, like every single film that she's made, although by this point they may already have shown Water Lilies. Um, but I think post, yes, they have, um, but pretty much everything post that. So like um, Portrait of a Girl on Fire, Tomboy, Petite Maman, Girlhood. Oh, my God. Oh, that woman. Anyway, so there's all of that. And then GFT are doing a film month thingy um that has a better name um of christopher nolan stuff including which is very exciting a 35 millimeter print of inception and a 70 millimeter print of interstellar Ooh. which look very very good and there is also a season called Quirious, which is playing at gft i think which is various bits and pieces of queer cinema including um an early sally potter and i don't know any of the dates but it's soon and it's this month excellent uh lewis do you have anything that you're looking forward to film event wise uh well minions rise of grew but um i believe isn't um the new um isn't nope the new uh jordan peele film coming out in july i believe it's been pushed back to august oh no well minions rise of grew <laughs> minions rise of grew <laughs> Um, uh, one other thing to note is the Queen's Park in Glasgow are doing like a series of outdoor screenings all summer. Mm. They're free. They're all kind of like classics of the big screening oeuvre. 
your Rocky Horrors, your Wizarding and Eyes, Purple Rain, that'll be good fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. which will be a good time. And did we say CCA? We I have. And we have not. Okay, CCA are doing uh, three screenings from Sapphire, which is the Arab Film Festival based in London next weekend, which they're including like a queer musical shenanigan thing, which looks really great. Yeah, it's the 1001 Nights yeah, inspired yeah, yeah. Yeah. queer yeah. musical. Yeah, yeah, I might actually go to Glasgow because <laughs> it looks really good. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Plenty to look forward to. And there's always the fallback option of Minions Rise of Gru, which is out now in cinemas. All right, okay. Okay, I think we're <laughs> Time to end the podcast. Time to run away. Uh, yes, thank you, Lewis. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anahit. Thank you, Peter. Uh, you can follow us all on the socials. You can get uh, Anahit on Anahit Ruse. You can get myself on Peter Simpson, all one word, no vowels. You can get Lewis on Lou Rob underscore. It's either that or Lou underscore Rob underscore. I should know this. Okay. <laughs> Give both of those a shot, and if they don't work, we'll be fine. Um, you can also get in touch with us on email. Get us at cineskinny at theskinny.co.uk. Uh, thanks again to Upload for having us, and we will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 Bye.